go into our scripture reading portion of our service. So this morning's portion of scripture that we're going to read is Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Beginning in verse 20. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you wake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonors he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased though you give many gifts. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Uh, now with your Bible there in your lap, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're continuing in our study of this epistle, this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to his protege or one of his protégés, a young man named Timothy. And uh, we have seen in this letter that we've looked at so far, I think this is about the fifth week or the fifth message that we've had from this letter, we have seen that Paul is an apostle and therefore what he says is authoritative. What he says in this letter has the authority of an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's been, been commissioned by God the Father and God the Son to the ministry that he has. And he's writing this letter to Timothy, who is at a church, the church in Ephesus. And this church in Ephesus is having a problem. And the problem that Paul wants Timothy to address here is the problem of false teaching. And anytime you have false teaching, you have false teachers. And as Paul explains this problem, last week we said Paul communicated the problem. As Paul explains this problem, he says, really, there's two aspects of this problem. There's the doctrinal problem, and there's the attitudinal problem. The doctrinal problem is that they're teaching other doctrine, other than sound doctrine. They're teaching these things, and they're holding to fables, which are myths, and endless genealogies. And these things promote dissension, promote arguments, promote disputes among the church, and they do not lead to living according to God's plan. They do not lead to living according to to God's Bible. And uh, so the problem with these teachers is that their words are empty. They want to be law teachers. They want to be teachers of the law. Uh, their words are empty. They don't understand what they say or the things that they assert. And, and now as we come to verses 8 through 11, we're going to see that Paul illustrates the problem 
by using a very specific circumstance that involves the law, the Mosaic law. So look at your Bible there. I want to read verses 8 through 11, just so we have this whole passage in our mind. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And so Paul is going to talk about a very specific issue that these false teachers were bringing up in their wanting to teach the law. We're going to see there's a misuse and abuse of the law. And we can see that same type of thing in our world today, can't we? Can't we see the misuse and abuse of our laws, the laws of our land? You know, sometimes laws are either poorly written or they're written in a way so that only a special few, you know what, they don't have to follow the law. Everybody else can follow the law, but they don't have to. Is that justice? Most people would say that's not justice. But even if we look at all the abuse, all the misuse of our laws, the laws of our country, I think most of us would agree that our laws, that our Constitution is good. Even though there's a tremendous amount of abuse out there of it, we would still say our law system is a good law system. Innocent until proven guilty. Our Constitution is a good Constitution on which to found the governing of our country. We would say this is a good thing despite the abuse of it. Well, in our time today, not only do we see the abuse and misuse of the laws of our land, but we also see that there's an abuse and misuse of the Mosaic law today. There is a renewed interest by many in the church of the law of Moses. And when we hear this, we might think, well, what could be bad? What could be wrong about people being interested in the Ten Commandments? I mean, the ten, if everybody lived by the Ten Commandments, wouldn't life be so much better? Well, that would be true, but what people are saying today in the church, many in the church are saying this, is that Christians ought to be put back under the law. They ought to have to follow the law, its moral and ethical and civil instructions. But when we hear people say that, our question ought to be, is that what the Bible says? Does the Bible say that Christians ought to be under the law? And so we're going we're gonna to look at this question of the law today. And there's uh, two points I want us to see in our passage today. Number one, the problem is not the law. And number two, the purpose of the law. Number one, the problem is not the law. Number two that comes out of number one is the purpose of the law. We're going to try to answer the question, what is the purpose of the law? So look at verse eight, and here we see that the problem, the problem that Paul is dealing with, he wants Timothy to deal with, is not the law. Notice what it says. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's three things we see in this verse. We see the contrast. We see the content and we see the condition, the contrast, the content, and the condition. So let's look at the contrast first. Look, notice the first three words. But we know. But, that's a contrast, 
And, and what is the contrast? The contrast is we know. So Paul begins his illustration of the problem that these wannabe law teachers have by contrasting them with those who hold sound doctrine. Uh, so these wannabe law teachers, remember, they don't know what they're saying. They don't know the things that they are asserting. Look at verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. They don't know. But Paul says here in verse 8, but we know. Paul, Timothy, and those who hold to sound doctrine, we know. So in contrast to these false teachers, Paul and Timothy know. They don't understand, but we understand. They don't know the Bible, what God says, but we know what God says. And do you realize that knowing the Bible is more than just knowing the words that are used? Knowing the Bible is understanding what those words mean and what God intended to communicate to us through those words. Always remember, always remember, the Bible is knowable and understandable. It is knowable and understandable. It was written in the common everyday language of its audience. The Bible was written in an understandable way, in an understandable form. It was written in narratives and letters and poetry, all of which its audience understood. The Bible was written in a particular historic context that the people actually lived in. They understood their context and their culture. Now, we're separated from the time of the Bible by at least 2,000 years. But here's the thing. Even though our Bible is in English, the Bible, the Bible wasn't originally written in English, but we have good English translations, good and accurate translations, so we know what the Bible says. Even though uh, the Bible was not written in 21st century United States of America, we know the history in which the Bible occurred. The events of the Bible occurred in history, and we know that history. Even though the people back then wrote a little bit different than the people write today, we know how they wrote, and we can understand what they wrote. And all that means is that the Bible is knowable. It's not mysterious. It's not mystical. It's not cryptic. Another important factor in the knowability of the Bible is that God, the author of the Bible, is also the creator of communication and thinking. Have you ever realized that? That God not only is the creator of heaven and earth, but he created the ability for man to communicate and for man to think. This means that if God wants to communicate to man, he is totally capable of communicating clearly and accurately and knowably. And guess what? God has communicated to us. He has given us his word, the Bible, and he has communicated it to us so that we may know it, so that we can know it. Not that we'll be confused by it. Not that we'll argue over it, but that we will know it. God has communicated the Bible to us understandably so that we can understand his word for us, who he is, and what he wants us to do. So that's the contrast. The contrast we see here is the contrast between these wannabe law teachers who don't know and those who hold to sound doctrine that do know. And Paul says, but we know. And now what does Paul know? What does Paul know? And what does all those who hold to sound doctrine know? Now we go to the content. The content. What, and what's it say that we know here? That the law is good. That's what we know. This is truth. This is a fact. That the law is good. Now the law being referred to here is the Mosaic law. The first five books of the Bible. Now, some have tried to limit this 
and they dissect the law up into a bunch of parts, but the Bible doesn't let us do that. The Bible doesn't let us dissect the law up into the ceremony, civil, and uh, moral law. It's all one. It's all united. Others have tried to expand it, so it's more than just the Mosaic law. It's actually more than the Bible, they would say. But when Paul uses the term law, unless he qualifies it in some other way, he is talking about the Mosaic law. And so Paul says, what we know is that the law is good. The law is morally upright. It does not approve or promote evil. So whenever you see something written in the law, it it is to promote good. It's not there to promote evil. It's not there to approve what is wrong. And because the law is good, we should understand right away that these would-be lawgivers don't really know the law. They don't know the law because the things that they're paying attention to promote disputes. The things that they are teaching promote not living according to God's plan. This is what we're doing. We see this in verse 4. It's what it tells us in verse 4 there that the things that they promote, the things that they are teaching doesn't doesn't cause us or lead us to living according to God's plan or God's word, God's Bible. And so the law is good. The law is good, but the law teachers, these want-to-be law teachers, are not good. So we're, we're focusing into the part of the problem here that is, is at hand. It's not the law that they want to teach. That is not the problem. The problem is these, go into our scripture reading portion of our service. So this morning's portion of scripture that we're going to read is Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Beginning in verse 20. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you wake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonors he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35. Uh, Now with your Bible there in your lap, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're continuing in in our study of this epistle, this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to his protege or one of his protégés, a young man named Timothy. And uh, we have seen in this letter that we've looked at so far. I think this is about the fifth week or the fifth message that we've had from this letter. 
we have seen that Paul is an apostle and therefore what he says is authoritative. What he says in this letter has the authority of an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's been, been commissioned by God the Father and God the Son to the ministry that he has. And he's writing this letter to Timothy who is at a church, the church in Ephesus, and this church in Ephesus is having a problem. And the problem that Paul wants Timothy to address here is the problem of false teaching. And anytime you have false teaching, you have false teachers. And as Paul explains this problem, last week we said Paul communicated the problem. As Paul explains this problem, he says, really, there's two aspects to this problem. There's the doctrinal problem, and there's the attitudinal problem. The doctrinal problem is that they're teaching other doctrine, other than sound doctrine. They're teaching these things, and they're holding to fables, which are myths, and endless genealogies, and these things promote dissension, promote arguments, promote disputes among the church, and they do not lead to living according to God's plan. They do not lead to living according to God's Bible. And uh, so the problem with these teachers is that their words are empty. They want to be law teachers. They want to be teachers of the law. Uh, their words are empty. They don't understand what they say or the things that they assert. And, and now as we come to verses 8 through 11, we're going to see that Paul illustrates the problem by using a very specific circumstance that involves the law, the Mosaic law. So look at your Bible there. I want to read verses 8 through 11 just so we have this whole passage in our mind. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And so Paul is going to talk about a very specific issue that these false teachers were bringing up in their wanting to teach the law. We're going to see there's a misuse and abuse of the law. And we can see that same type of thing in our world today, can't we? Can't we see the misuse and abuse of our laws, the laws of our land? You know, sometimes laws are either poorly written or they're written in a way so that only a special few, you know what, they don't have to follow the law. Everybody else can follow the law, but they don't have to. Is that justice? Most people would say that's not justice. But even if we look at all the abuse, all the misuse of our laws, the laws of our country, I think most of us would agree that our laws, that our Constitution is good. Even though there's a tremendous amount of abuse out there of it, we would still say our law system is a good law system. Innocent until proven guilty. Our Constitution is a good Constitution on which to found the governing of our country. We would say this is a good thing despite the abuse of it. Well, in our time today, not only do we see the abuse and misuse of the laws of our land, but we also see that there's an abuse and misuse of the Mosaic law today. There is a renewed interest by many in the church of the law of Moses. And when we hear this, we might think, well, what could be bad? What could be wrong about people being interested in the Ten Commandments? I mean, the ten, if everybody lived by the Ten Commandments, wouldn't life be so much better? 
Well, that would be true. But what people are saying today in the church, many in the church are saying this, is that Christians ought to be put back under the law. They ought to have to follow the law. It's moral and ethical and civil instructions. But when we hear people say that, our question ought to be, is that what the Bible says? Does the Bible say that Christians ought to be under the law? And so we're going we're gonna to look at this question of the law today. And there's uh, two points I want us to see in our passage today. Number one, the problem is not the law. And number two, the purpose of the law. Number one, the problem is not the law. Number two, that comes out of number one, is the purpose of the law. We're going to try to answer the question, what is the purpose of the law? So look at verse eight, and here we see that the problem is The problem that Paul is dealing with, he wants Timothy to deal with, is not the law. Notice what it says. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's three things we see in this verse. We see the contrast, we see the content, and we see the condition. The contrast, the content, and the condition. So let's look at the contrast first. Notice the first three words. But we know. But, that's a contrast. And and what is the contrast? The contrast is we know. So Paul begins his illustration of the problem that these wannabe law teachers have by contrasting them with those who hold sound doctrine. Uh, So these wannabe law teachers, remember, they don't know what they're saying. They don't know the things that they are saying asserting. Look at verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. They don't know. But Paul says here in verse 8, but we know. Paul, Timothy, and those who hold to sound doctrine, we know. So in contrast to these false teachers, Paul and Timothy, no. They don't understand, but we understand. They don't know the Bible, what God says, but we know what God says. And do you realize that knowing the Bible is more than just knowing the words that are used? Knowing the Bible is understanding what those words mean and what God intended to communicate to us through those words. Always remember, always remember, The Bible is knowable and understandable. It is knowable and understandable. It was written in the common everyday language of its audience. The Bible was written in an understandable way, in an understandable form. It was written in narratives and letters and poetry, all of which its audience understood. The Bible was written in a particular historic context that the people actually lived in. They understood their context. And their culture. Now we're separated from the time of the Bible by at least 2,000 years. But here's the thing even though our Bible is in English, the the Bible wasn't originally written in English, but we have good English translations, good and accurate translation so we know what the Bible says. Even though uh, the Bible was not written in 21st century United States of America, we know the history in which the Bible occurred. The events of the Bible occurred in history and we know that history. Even though the people back then wrote a little bit different than the people write today, we know how they wrote and we can understand what they wrote. And all that means is that the Bible is knowable. It's not mysterious. It's not mystical. It's not cryptic. Another important factor in the knowability of the Bible is that God, the author of the Bible, is also the creator of communication and thinking. Have you ever realized that? 
that God not only is the creator of heaven and earth, but he created the ability for man to communicate and for man to think. This means that if God wants to communicate to man, he is totally capable of communicating clearly and accurately and knowably. And guess what? God has communicated to us. He has given us his word, the Bible, and he has communicated it to us so that we may know it, so that we can know it. Not that we'll be confused by it, not that we'll argue over it, but that we will know it. God has communicated the Bible to us understandably so that we can understand his word for us, who he is, and what he wants us to do. So that's the contrast. The contrast we see here is the contrast between these wannabe law teachers who don't know and those who hold to sound doctrine that do know. And Paul says, but we know. And now what does Paul know? What does Paul know and what does all those who hold to sound doctrine know? Now we go to the content, the content. What, and what's it say that we know here? That the law is good. That's what we know. This is truth. This is a fact that the law is good. Now the law being referred to here is the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible. Now some have tried to limit this. And they dissect the law up into a bunch of parts, but the Bible doesn't let us do that. The Bible doesn't let us dissect the law up into the ceremony, civil, and uh, moral law. It's all one. It's all united. Others have tried to expand it. So it's more than just the Mosaic law. It's actually more than the Bible, they would say. But when Paul uses the term law, unless he qualifies it in some other way, he is talking about the Mosaic law. And so Paul says, what we know is that the law is good. The law is morally upright. It does not approve or promote evil. So whenever you see something written in the law, it, it is to promote good. It's not there to promote evil. It's not there to approve what is wrong. And because the law is good, we should understand right away that these would-be lawgivers don't really know the law. They don't know the law because the things that they're paying attention to promote disputes. The things that they are teaching promote not living according to God's plan. This is what we're doing. We see this in verse 4. What it tells us in verse 4 there that the things that they promote, the things that they are teaching doesn't, per, doesn't cause us or lead us to living according to God's plan or God's word, God's Bible. And so the law is good. The law is good, but the law teachers, these want to be law teachers, are not good. So we're, we're focusing in to the part of the problem here that is, is at hand. It's not the law that they want to teach. That is not the problem. The problem is these false teachers, these law teachers. So let me ask you a question. Is man capable of taking something that God has created for good and turning it, it into something wicked? Can man take what is good, what is given by God for good, and man take it and turn it into something wicked? And of course, the answer is yes. God created man with the need to eat. And what does man do? He overeats. He turns into a glutton. Uh, God created a man to work. And what does man do? Man takes work and he makes it the center of everything. Work is the focus of my life. God created man as a relational being. And what does man do? He makes all his relationships with other people about himself so he can meet his own personal gratification. God created man with the ability to invent things. Think about that. 
People invent things. People discover things out in our world, out in our universe. How were they able to do that? God gave them the ability to do that. They can invent things. And then they take the things that they invent and they use it for evil. So the problem is not with the law. The law is good. The problem is with these false teachers, these want-to-be-law teachers. And even though the law is good, they are not. So we see the contrast. We see the content. The law is good. Now let's look at the condition because it, it doesn't just say the law is good. Look at verse 8 again. It says, but we know that the law is good if. A little two-letter word tells us there's a condition attached. A condition simply means if this is true, then this is also true. That's what we call condition. If this is true, then this is also true. So here is the condition. The law is good if it is used properly, if it's used lawfully, if it is used rightly. And of course, Paul's emphasizing the fact that these wannabe law teachers, they're not using it lawfully. And so because there's a condition here, this also indicates to us that while the law is good in itself, it can be abused and it can be used. Even though it's the law, even though it's the law of Moses, it can be abused. And, and people don't just focus their abuse on the law of Moses. Uh, the Bible as a whole has suffered under abuse and misuse throughout its history. How is it that someone can take the Bible, something that is good. I hope we would all agree this morning that the Bible is good. How can somebody take the Bible and use it wrongly, even use it for evil? Well, I think there's at least three. I'm going to give you three examples of ways that people can take the Bible, which is good, and abuse it and use it wrongly. Number one, they, when they read the Bible, they really don't care what the passage says. They really don't care what it says. They've already made up their mind. So they're, they don't care. Number two, they read into the Bible. Instead of letting the Bible speak to them, they read their thoughts into the Bible and say, this is what the Bible has to say. Now, the fancy word for that is what we call eisegesis. Eisegesis where you read in, ice is into, you read into the Bible instead of exegesis, get out from the Bible. So that's the second example. The third example is they simply ignore words and context. They skip over words. They, they just jump right over words or they add words. They're ignoring the words and the context in which the passage occurs. So that's three examples of what people do and their misuse and abuse of the Bible. And this is, this is where the danger in proof texting comes from. You all know what proof texting is? It's where you take a verse or a part of a verse and you pull it out of its content, uh, context to prove a point. You have a point you want to prove, so I'm going to go to the Bible and I'm going to find a phrase in there and I'm going to say, well, this is what the Bible says. It proves my point. Just like I'm sure you've heard the example where the person said, the Bible says there is no God. You know, that is true. The Bible says it has the words, there is no God. And they pull that out of the context. Of course, from the context, we know it says a fool in his heart says there is no God. So the fool says there is no God. Not that there's no God. The Bible's not saying there's no God. But the Bible can be abused, especially when we just use it to uh, have a proof text to support our point. One of the most valuable lessons I learned in seminary was that my professors stressed the fact that you follow the text of Scripture no matter what. That is what you follow. You follow the text. Follow the text. I can remember I wrote a brilliant paper. I mean, it was exceptional. It was outstanding. I wrote this brilliant paper. I turned it in. You get it back about a week later. And my professor had uh, written on it. Basically, I understand your argument. 
but is that what the text said? And he, in a very gentle way, was saying to me, you're an idiot, you totally missed the point of the passage. But he was doing it gently, and that's, that has always stuck with me. You follow the text. You follow the text wherever it goes. Whether you like it or not, you follow it. And the Bible, when we look at history, we can see how the Bible has been abused over and over again. Did you know that Hitler had Bible scholars working for him to justify his abuse and oppression of the Jews? Did you realize that? Bible scholars. Good Bible scholars. I mean, they were very good in what they did, but they worked for Hitler. And here was their rationale. The Jews rejected God. Is that true, by the way? Jews rejected God. Yeah, that's true. They rejected Jesus Christ. The Jews are going to be judged by God. Is that true? Yep, that's true. Uh, God's going to use Gentiles to judge the Jews. Well, the Bible says that too. And the judgment of the Jews must be completed before they will be restored. Is that all true? Yes, all of that is true. But here's the conclusion that they drew from that. Therefore, it is biblical and Christian of us to abuse and oppress the Jews. That's a wrong conclusion. Even though they took parts of the Bible and put it together, they came to the wrong conclusion. Hitler and the Nazis did not care about what the Bible said. They were just trying to defend their depraved views before a cultural Christianity. Do you realize that almost all cults and false Bible teaching are based on taking verses and passages out of context by proof texting? This is where many, many mistakes come from. And this is why our approach to knowing and understanding the Bible is systematic. It's not sensational. I don't think anybody's ever going to accuse me of being sensational. It's methodological. It's not driven by the moment. It's based on a careful study of the text, not on tweetable points. It is why we go to great lengths here to ensure that not only we have an accurate conclusion, but we know accurately why that conclusion is true. Because it's not enough to know the solution. You also have to know how to get to the solution because you have to be able to give a defense of what you believe. And so this is why we focus on this. And Paul is doing much of that same thing here as he says, the law is not the problem. The false teachers are the problem. They are not like us. They are not following God's word. We follow God's word. The law is good, but they're not using it in the right way. It's good if it's used lawfully, but these false teachers are not using it lawfully. Now, when we come to that conclusion in verse 8, the question naturally comes up, well, what is the proper use of the law? What is the law supposed to be used for? And so in verses 9 through 11, we have the purpose, the purpose of the law. Verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, so notice in verse 9, right away, Paul picks back up on this idea of knowing. Did you see that? He says, knowing this. He says, we know the law is good if it's used lawfully. Knowing this. He's going to tell us something about the law that is known, that is noble, that is a fact. Talking about fact and truth here. And so the first thing he tells us here is who the law is not for. Who the law is not for, it is not for the righteous person. You see that there in verse 9? Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Uh, the word made there, I found this interesting. The word made there means to lay down. So the law was not laid down for the righteous person. So it's a figure of speech. We use this figure of speech all the time. So have, have you ever been somewhere 
where there's a kid misbehaving. I know it doesn't happen in this church, but at least not now. Maybe years and years ago it happened, but not now. Our kids here are perfect. So maybe there's a kid misbehaving somewhere, and the mother corrects them quickly, immediately, and completely. And you say to yourself, man, she really laid down the law, right? This is the same idea, this, this expression of speech. The law is not made, is not laid down for a righteous person. Now, if the law is not made for a righteous person, we probably should understand who's the righteous person here. Who's the righteous person here? Remember, Paul is contrasting himself and Timothy and those who follow sound doctrine with these false teachers. Paul says, we know they don't know. We know they don't know. And so the righteous person here is the one who knows right and does right. Who knows right and does right. This is not talking about the Christian who has been made righteous in Christ. That's a different classification. Paul's not talking about that in this context. He's talking about the righteous person who knows and obeys the standard, the law, the Bible. This is who the righteous person is. And so he says, the law is not made for this person. They're doing right. They're doing right. They know right and they're doing that. By the way, by the way, we said this last week, I'm going to say it again. In order to do right, you have to know right. Knowing what is right comes before doing what is right. All right? You have to know before you do. And that goes together right here with what Paul is saying. So the law is not for the righteous. So who's the law for? Who's the law for? It's made for, and I'm going to sum up all these words with this word, the unrighteous. It is made for the unrighteous. But we can't just use one word to sum it up because Paul lists 15 things here, 14 particular things that he is using to show what an unrighteous person is. Let's look at these really quickly. Right in the middle of verse 9. Lawless. This is the person who does not obey the law. It doesn't mean they don't have the law. It means they're not obeying the law. Lawless. Insubordinate. That's a rebellious person. Ungodly. One who doesn't have the proper respect for God that he deserves. I think using the Lord's name in vain, it fits into being ungodly. Because when you use the Lord's name in vain, you're using it in a way that degrades God. It's offense to who God is. When we use the Lord's name, we ought to elevate, exalt, and praise him. That's how we use the Lord's name. So ungodly. Then there's the word sinners. Oftentimes when we see the word sinners, we look at that as a, like an umbrella, a big umbrella that covers all these things that fit into the category of those who sin. But that cannot be the case here. And it cannot be the case here because it's in a list of sins. So you can't have the general word in the list of specific sins. So what does it mean to be a sinner? It means to miss the mark, to miss the mark morally and ethically. The law says this, the Bible says this, and you miss that mark. You don't hit the mark. That's what it means to be a sinner. Number five is unholy, those who don't separate themselves from wickedness. Number six is profane, those who treat God as if he is a common everyday thing, just like us. Uh, murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. We probably couldn't imagine this happening, but it does happen. I think this was specifically connected to the commandment, honor your father and your mother. Uh, murdering one's father and mother is the ultimate expression of dishonoring them. Then it says fornicators, all kinds of heterosexual sin. Homosexuals, this is all kinds of homosexual sin, whether male or female. Kidnappers, those who take people to use them. Liars, self-explanatory. Perjurers, those who take an oath with no intention on keeping their oath. And then, this is my favorite, it's the catch-all. The catch-all phrase, 
here uh, at the end of verse 10. And if there is anything, uh, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So in the military, this is the Uniform Code of Military Justice, Article 134. And if you've been in the military, you know Article 134. The nickname is the catch-all article. And basically, you can be charged. If they can't pin you down with something particular, you can be charged under this particular point of law, and it basically says anything that's contrary to military bearing and behavior. That's pretty broad, isn't it? So it's the catch-all. This is sort of Paul's Article 134, this catch-all statement. Any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, as we look at these lists of things, these 14 particular things here, I think we could go to the Old Testament and we would easily find Old Testament passages that talk about each and every one of these things. And I would encourage, we're not going to do it this morning, but I would encourage you, uh, maybe this afternoon, after you take your nap, get up, uh, read this passage again, then trace some references and try to find in the Old Testament where each of these particular expressions of unrighteousness are found. I think you, I think it'll be a good exercise and it won't be hard. And so uh, Paul gives this list. Now, one of the questions I have, now, so this is just me in my mind, but one of the questions I see when I see a list is, why does Paul list these 14 particular things? Why does he give these 14? Wouldn't it be easier for Paul just to say, you know, and anybody who doesn't follow the Ten Commandments, Why didn't he just do that? Wouldn't that have been easier? But he doesn't. He lists these 14 particular things. Why does Paul do that? I think the answer is found in the fact that these questions or these points that we see here, these points of who the law was made for, correspond to what these false teachers were teaching. Remember, part of what the false teachers are doing is causing division. They're causing disputes in the church. They're causing people to live in ways that aren't pleasing to God according to God's plan. And I think that Paul mentions these 14 things because it is these 14 things that these false teachers are saying, well, that's not true. You don't actually have to follow that. Um, let's talk about how we should understand those things. And you know what? Christians do that today. They do that today. Well, you know, do we have to really follow exactly what the Bible says and everything that the Bible says? Do we have to do that? I mean, really? The Bible's got a lot of words in it. Do we have to know everything and follow everything? You know, this activity, whatever it might be, this activity you know, it's, is it really a sin? Now, maybe it's bad judgment. Maybe it's a mistake. But are you really going to call that a sin? So people argue about these things. I mean, euthanasia. Euthanasia. Who would have thought 100 years ago that anybody would think it's okay to put people to death who were no longer producers for the society. They were just coasters. We might say they were retired. <laughs> who would have ever thought that someone would argue, yeah, you can put those people to death. They have lived their life. They're at the end. They're, you know, they're just a burden on us now. Murders of fathers and mothers. Who would have thought someone in the church, leaders in the church, would say homosexuality is not a sin. Who would have thought that? Who would have thought? Who would have thought that one of the major problems in Christian young people today is them thinking that they have to live together with their soon-to-be spouse before they're married. They have to live and sleep together to make sure that they're a match. Besides, you know, they they argue They argue and say, this is okay. It's okay if we sleep together because God has given us these desires and God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. And they argue about that. And there's people in the church who support them in that. What about it's just a little white lie? 
just a little white lie. Or, you know what, I'm just going to say yes to that because I want to get what I want, but I have no intention of following through. So Christians do this all the time. So the problem that Paul is talking about in Ephesus back in the first century is very much a 21st century problem that we see today. And the problem is that people come into the church who are false teachers and they're teaching false doctrine. And we know that because when the Bible says clearly this is a fact and this is true, they say, no, it's not. It's not true. And they, they build up arguments and they cause people to have disputations and disagreements over these things. If someone is confused about what the Bible says about these things that Paul writes, that's a clue never to listen to them. Paul says, we know that this is true. We know these things are true and the false teachers want to argue about whether it's true or not. And Paul ends here by saying any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. Now, what's contrary to sound doctrine? The doctrine that Paul has. That is sound doctrine. This is Christian doctrine. It is what is contained in our New Testament, especially the epistles. The epistles give us Christian doctrine for today. And so Paul says... If they say something that the law clearly says is a sin, and they say it's not a sin, false teacher. If they go against the Christian doctrine that we have here in our New Testament epistles, and they say, yeah, you don't have to pay attention to that, they're false teachers, and that's a false teaching. And so Paul has argued here, the law, there's nothing wrong with the law, the law is good. These false teachers are the ones with the problem. And so what place does the law have in the life of the believer today? What place does the law have in the life of the believer today? We have been in the first century, now we're coming to the 21st century. So how does the law, the law of Moses, affect us in our life today? Four things here real quick. Number one, the law does not provide salvation. The law does not provide salvation. In Romans chapter 6 and 7, we see this argued. And we'll talk about this in my Sunday school class a little bit later. But in, in verse 14, we get the summary of Paul's argument. Romans 6, 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. The law does not provide salvation. Number two, the law does not provide sanctification for the believer. The law does not provide sanctification for the believer. We see this in Galatians 2 and 3. Um, let me give you an example from Galatians 3, 19, and then verses 24 and 25. Galatians 3, 19, verse 24, and then verse 25. Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? So what's the purpose of the law? He's asking the same question that we're asking. It was added because of transgressions. Until the seed, that's talking about Jesus Christ, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor, our instructor, to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So after you're saved, you're no longer under the tutor. The law does not help in our sanctification. It's a profound doctrinal and theological error to think, accept, or teach that the law either provides salvation from your sins or sanctification as a believer in Jesus Christ. Points three and four, these are a little bit more positive. What place does the law have in the life of the believer? It is an example, this is number three, it is an example for us of what not to do. It's an example. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
verses 1 through 13, we have Paul writing to those in Corinth, and he talks about the wanderers in the wilderness, the Jews wandering in the wilderness, and he says, these things are written so that you have an example of what not to do. I'm paraphrasing there a little bit. Don't be like the Jews who wandered in the wilderness. By the way, that's in the book of Numbers. Now, what part of the Old Testament does the book of Numbers appear in? The law. The law. The law is written so that believers have an example of what not to do. What not to do. So it's an example. But finally, the law is also an aid to evangelism. So the law doesn't provide salvation, but it can help bring someone to salvation. Have you all ever heard of the way of the master? Ray Comfort. He goes out and he does street evangelism. And the method that he uses is he, he takes the Old Testament and he asks people, have you ever violated the Old Testament or, or, or the law, the Ten Commandments is what I'm saying. Um, I know what I'm saying. Uh, I'm just having a hard time getting you to understand what I'm saying. So have you ever violated one of the Ten Commandments? And uh, so he asked them, and, and his point is to show them that they have violated the Ten Commandments, therefore they're a sinner. The law shows people that they're sinners, and it shows them their sin. That's what it does. It doesn't provide salvation, but it shows your need for salvation. After someone has a need of salvation, then they have to be shown how God has provided salvation. So this morning as we close, I hope you as a believer have the right view of the law. I hope you don't think that by following the law that you are in some way gaining merit to get into heaven. That's not what the law is for. I hope you don't think that the, the law, following the law, makes you spiritual. If I can check it off, I haven't committed this commandment or that com against that commandment, I'm spiritual. That's not what the law was given for. But maybe you're listening to this and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you think, I'm not bad. I'm not that bad. I'm not really a sinner. A sinner is a, just a really bad person. They put those in jail. I'm not a sinner. Well, if, let me ask you some questions to see if you're not a sinner. Have you ever been rebellious? Have you ever done something when someone told you to do something else? Have you ever been part of any wicked behavior? Lying, cheating, stealing. Have you ever out acted outside of God's boundaries that he has set up? Have you ever had a, a disdain for God? God doesn't exist or God is not somebody I need to pay attention to. Have you ever thought that God is just like you and me? Have you ever not honored your parents? Have you ever had a hateful thought towards another person? I think I told you about my, my, my one hateful thought towards my brother that one time when he punched me. I think I've told you about that. Have you ever lusted in your heart after someone? If you answer any of those questions with yes, then you, are, you have sinned and you are a sinner. And as a sinner, you deserve death. And death is total, absolute separation from God brought on by God's judgment of you and your sin. This death has its ultimate end in the lake of fire, where all those who do not have salvation from God are cast to suffer torment for all eternity. This is the problem. The problem is sin and the fact that we are sinners. But God has provided solution. God has made the rescue plan to rescue you from your own sins. God loved you so much. He sent his son to die in your place, to die so that you would not have to die. God's rescue plan has been accomplished. But in order for you to be rescued, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. To accept Christ as your Savior, the only thing you need to do is to receive him. 
to trust in him, to put your confidence in him for your salvation as the only one who can save you. If you want to do that today, you can say a prayer like this. Now, saying a prayer is not what saves you. It's your heart. That is what matters. Is this something that you are really saying, not just mimicking words, but this is a prayer that you might use. God, I know I'm a sinner and I have sinned against you. I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to take my punishment, to take my penalty for my sins. I am putting my trust in him. I am trusting him to save me. The Bible says that if you say a prayer like that, you talk to God in that way and you mean it, you are saved and have eternal life. You have, you possess eternal life. You have passed from death to life. Now you have a new life. You have a new heart and God is going to do something new in you because you're part of the family of God. Won't you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks today for your word. We're, we're so thankful for its clarity. Uh, we're also thankful for the warnings that we see in your word, warnings about false teachers and false teaching. Lord, I pray that you would protect this church from any false doctrine. Pray that you would protect us from false teachers that would creep in like savage wolves. Lord, help us to be totally committed to what your word says. Help us not to elevate anything else to the same authority. When somebody asks us what we believe, help us to be able to say, this is what the Bible says, and even point them to a passage or a verse. Lord, we ask these things from you. We need your help in this. And Lord, if there would be one who's listening this morning or maybe even here this morning and they don't know you as Savior, Lord, help their mind focus on these uh, parts of the law that we have read this morning, these violations of the law that we have read and convict them that they are a sinner and they need Jesus Christ as their Savior. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior. Amen.